Chapter 24, Part 2 of Discoveries Among the Ruins of Nineveh and Babylon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Peter Dan. Discoveries Among the Ruins of Nineveh and Babylon by Austin Layard. Chapter 24, Part 2. Being thus compelled to remain at the souk, I fitted up my tent and cabins as well as I was able. The weather was intensely cold, and it was the middle of the rainy season. By the help of mats, we were able to keep out the water to a certain extent. The excavations were carried on until the 3rd of February, and I will describe at once their general results. Niffer, as I have already observed, consist rather of a collection of mounds of unequal height and irregular form than of one compact platform like the principal ruins of Assyria. They may be divided into four distinct groups, each surrounded and separated from the others by deep ravines, which have the appearance of ancient streets. The high cone at the northeast corner is probably the remains of a square tower constructed entirely of large sun-dried bricks, Beneath the cone, masonry of sun-dried and kiln-burnt bricks protrudes from the sides of the ravines. The bricks are generally smaller in dimension than those from Babylon, and long and narrow in shape. Many of them are stamped with inscriptions in the Babylonian character, containing the name of a king and of the city. My workmen were divided into gangs, or karkanas, as they are called by the Arabs, and were placed in different parts of the ruins. On the first day, some cells or recesses containing human remains were discovered. During the two subsequent days, we found many vases and jars of earthenware, some glazed and others plain. With these relics was a bowl, unfortunately much broken, covered with ancient Hebrew characters similar to those discovered at Babylon. Fragments of similar vessels were afterwards dug out of the ruins. On the mound of Nipha, as on other ruins of the same period in this part of Mesopotamia, are found numerous fragments of highly glazed pottery of a rich blue colour, but very coarse and fragile in texture. I was at a loss to conjecture the nature of the objects of which they had originally formed a part, until on the fourth day of the excavations, a party of workmen uncovered a coffin or sarcophagus of precisely the same material. Within it were human remains, which crumbled to dust almost soon as exposed to the air. The earthenware was so ill-burnt, and had suffered so much from age, that I was unable to remove this coffin entire. It fell to pieces as soon as I endeavoured to detach it from the soil by which it was surrounded. But beneath it was found a second, and subsequently scarcely a day elapsed without the discovery of four or five similar coffins. The largest were about six feet long. Some, containing the remains of children, scarcely exceeded three. They were all of nearly the same shape. An oval, about two feet wide, for the head and shoulders of the corpse, joined to a narrow box for the legs and feet. The oval was closed by a detached flat lid. The rest of the coffin was covered, and there was a small hole at the very end. The body must, consequently, have been forced into the sarcophagus from the top or open part. All of these coffins were covered with bright greenish-blue glaze, 
coloured with copper like that on pottery and bricks from the ruins of Babylon. Some were ornamented with scroll work and other designs, others with rude figures of men and animals in relief. They were all of the same fragile material. The clay, moreover, having been only partially burnt, had been exposed to the action of the nitre so abundant in the soil. Without considerable care it was impossible to remove any entire, although the surrounding earth was easily detached from them. Human remains, more or less perfect, were found in all these sarcophagi. Sometimes, as the lid was carefully removed, I could almost distinguish the body wrapped in its grave clothes and still lying in its narrow resting place. But no sooner did the outer air reach the empty crust of humanity than it fell away into dust, leaving only the skull and great bones of the arms and legs to show what these now empty cases had once contained. One or two small cups or vases in the same glazed pottery and a few beads and engraved gems were occasionally gathered from the crumbling remains, but no ornaments of gold or silver were discovered at Nifa, though it appears that the Arabs frequently find them in similar coffins from other ruins in southern Mesopotamia. It is remarkable, however, that there were no ornaments whatever in metal in nearly a hundred coffins which I opened at Nifa. It is impossible to estimate the number of these earthen coffins. The upper parts of the mound in some places appeared to consist almost entirely of them. They generally rested one upon the other, but in some cases were separated by a layer of flat bricks or tiles. As fast as the fragments of one were removed, a second appeared beneath it, and notwithstanding the number thus taken away, I did not penetrate many feet beneath the surface. In the lower part of Mesopotamia are many ruins in which similar remains are equally abundant. Fragments of glazed pottery, broken from them, are seen on every ancient site to the south of Babylon. According to Mr. Loftus, the vast mound of worker is built almost entirely of such coffins, piled one above the other, and consequently many thousands, or rather hundreds of thousands, must exist in it alone. It is difficult to arrive at a very satisfactory conclusion as to the precise date of these remains. My own impression is that they are comparatively modern, that is, that they are to be attributed to a period subsequent to the fall of the Babylonian Empire, extending from the 2nd or 1st century before the Christian era to even the time of the Arab invasion. Colonel Rawlinson entertains, I believe, a different opinion and would attribute them to a much earlier period. If the great mounds of Nifa be the remains of a Babylonian city, as they probably are, it is evident that that city must have been completely destroyed, and its ruins covered with earth long before a people, afterwards inhabiting the country, could have buried their dead above them. In one part of the mound, in a kind of recess or small chamber of brick masonry, was discovered a heap of pottery of a yellow colour, very thin and fragile, much resembling that still made at Baghdad to hold water in hot weather. Many vases and cups were still entire. With them were fragments of glass bottles, jars and other vessels, and several highly glazed or enamelled dishes. These relics appeared to be of the same period as the sarcophagi. A large number of coarse jars or urns, some nearly six feet high, were dug out of various parts of the mound, they contained bones of men and animals, 
and their mouths had been carefully closed by a tile or brick plastered with bitumen. Although many deep trenches were opened in the ruins and in the conical mound at the northeast corner, no other remains or relics were discovered. With the exception of a few massive foundations and the bricks bearing a cuneiform superscription, I much doubt whether anything found at Nifa was of the true Babylonian period. The Arabs have a story that a great black stone exists somewhere in the ruins. I had once conjectured that it might be the identical obelisk said to have been brought by Semiramis from Armenia to Babylon. After I had searched in vain for it, I was assured that it was near some mounds several miles to the east of Nifa. I sent a party of workmen to the spot, but with no better success. On the whole, I am much inclined to question whether extensive excavations carried on at Nifa would produce any very important or interesting results. In the Afaj Bazaar, I was able to purchase a few relics from the Arabs. They consisted chiefly of cylinders and engraved gems. But even such remains were far more scarce than I had anticipated. A ram in baked clay with three holes for holding colours or ointments, apparently Babylonian, and a pebble of white marble on which are rudely engraved two goats before the sacred tree, and a few cuneiform characters, were brought to me from some neighbouring ruin. Such were all the antiquities I obtained during my visit to Nifa. With the pottery collected at the mound, they are now in the British Museum. One of my principal objects in journeying into these wild tracts in southern Mesopotamia was to visit and explore the great mound of Worker. These remains had already been partly examined, as I have stated, by Mr. Loftus. A highly interesting collection of relics, comprising inscribed clay tablets, glazed pottery, ornaments in metal and engraved gems, had been obtained by that gentleman during his short residence among the ruins. They are now in the British Museum. Amongst them, and deserving particular notice, are the fragments of a shell on which are engraved the heads of two horses, apparently part of a subject representing a warrior in his chariot. The outline upon them is not without spirit, but they are principally remarkable for being almost identical with a similar engraved shell found in an Etruscan tomb and now in the British Museum. This is not the only instance, as it has been seen, of relics from Assyria and Etruria being of the same character, showing a close connection between the two countries, either direct or by mutual intercourse with some intermediate nation. Unfortunately, the state of the country to the south of the marshes was such that I was unable even to make an attempt to reach the remarkable ruins of Worker. The great Arab tribe of Montefic dwelling on the banks of the lower Euphrates and exercising a certain control over all the smaller tribes inhabiting the southern part of Mesopotamia, were split into opposite factions on account of the rival pretensions of two chiefs. Much blood had already been spilt, and the war was now extending to the Afaj. The surrounding tribes, taking advantage of the general confusion and of the unsuccessful attempt of the Pasha to subdue the Maidan Arabs, had openly rebelled against the government and were laying waste the province and plundering each other. It was indeed scarcely possible even to leave the Afaj territory, and Agab, who, like all the other Arab sheikhs, was not without his rival, began to fear an outbreak among his own people. 
He had already been summoned to take part in the war between the two Montefic chiefs, and he was anxious that I should be on safe ground before his troubles commenced. He therefore seriously urged me to return to Baghdad. The sheikh, with some other chiefs of his tribe, was accustomed to pass the evening in my tent. He would, on these occasions, describe the unsettled and dangerous state of the country and lament the insecurity caused by the misrule of the Turkish authorities. At the same time, he would entertain me with accounts of the districts to the south of the Afaj, their productions and the manners of the curious populations inhabiting those vast marshes. The greater part of the country below ancient Babylon has now been for centuries one great swamp. It is indeed what the prophet foretold it should be, a desert of the sea. The embankments of the rivers, utterly neglected, have broken away, and the waters have spread over the face of the land. The best known of these marshes are the Lemlud, formed by the Euphrates above its confluence with the Tigris at Corner but they now only form a part of those which are yearly increasing and threaten to cover the whole of southern Mesopotamia. The Arab tribes inhabiting them are, as I have already observed, among the most wild and ignorant that can be found in this part of Asia. The relations between them and the Porta have generally consisted of little more than a trial of treachery and deceit, and while the Turk looks upon these Arabs as mere wild beasts, they, in return, have lost all confidence in the faith and honour of the Ottoman government. But it is not so with respect to the English, who have always treated them honourably and kindly, and whom consequently they have allowed to pass to and fro without harm. This respect for the British name is mainly to be attributed to the admirable conduct and management of Captain Jones during the time he has commanded the steamer on the Tigris. These Arabs are of the Shia sect of Mussulmans and belong to the great tribes of Rubia and Al-Maidan. Each tribe has innumerable subdivisions with distinct names and separate and independent sheikhs. They live in mat huts and in small black tents. Their chief wealth consists in vast herds of buffaloes and they are on the whole, notwithstanding the wretched appearance of their dwellings and the scanty clothing of both men and women, richer than most Arab tribes. This is to be attributed to their having hitherto been able, in their almost inaccessible retreats, to defy the Turkish authorities. Their buffaloes supply them with large quantities of butter and milk. The former is exported and is a considerable article of trade. These hideous animals appear to thrive in the marshy lands, and some districts actually swarm with them. They are generally inoffensive and easily managed. These tribes have also flocks of sheep and goats, but the animals are small and their wool thin, and generally too coarse to form an article of commerce. They raise very little corn and barley. Rice of an inferior quality forms their principal food. The marshes and the jungles near the rivers are the retreats of many kinds of wild animals. Lions abound. I have seen them frequently and during the excavations at Nifa we found fresh traces of their footsteps almost daily among the ruins. The Maidan Arabs boast of capturing them in the following manner, and trustworthy persons have assured me that they have seen the feat performed. A man, having bound his right arm with strips of tamarisk, and holding in his hand a strong piece of the same wood, about a foot or more in length, hardened in the fire and sharpened at both ends, 
will advance boldly into the animal's lair. When the lion springs upon him, he forces the wood into the animal's extended jaws, which will then be held open whilst he can dispatch the astonished beast at his leisure with the pistol that he holds in his left hand. In the jungles are also found leopards, lynxes, wild cats, wolves, hyenas, jackals, deer, porcupines, boars in vast numbers, and other animals. Wild fowl, cranes, and bustards abound, and that beautiful game bird, the francolin, or black partridge, swarms in the low brushwood. The Arabs shoot them with ball. The marshes are full of fish, which attain a considerable size. They are chiefly, I believe, a kind of barbell. Their flesh is coarse and full of bones, but they afford the Arabs a constant supply of food. They are generally taken by the spear. Although the inhabitants of the marshes recognise some of the laws of the Bedouins, they are wanting in many of the virtues of the Arabs of the desert. They have, however, several customs relating to the duties of hospitality which are rigidly adhered to. To say of a Maidan that he has sold bread is to offer him the greatest of insults. To part with a loaf for money is accounted an act bringing disgrace not only upon the perpetrator but upon his whole family. I found this peculiar custom exceedingly inconvenient during my residence among the Afage. Sheikh Agab insisted upon giving daily to my large party their supplies of bread, and it was impossible to obtain it in any other manner. Even its sale in the public market was forbidden. I was, at length, compelled to send to a considerable distance for flour, and then to employ my own workmen in baking it. The same scruples do not exist with regard to other articles of food. They are sold in the bazaar, as in all eastern towns. In the souk or bazaar of the Afage tribe were exposed for sale a few common Manchester prints, those worldwide evidences of the extent of British trade, English stuffs printed and dyed at Baghdad called tanjebs, kefirs, Damascus silks, strike dabbers, dates, rice, coffee, spices, powder and arms, the usual stores of an eastern market. A few Christian jewellers fashion gold and silver ornaments for the women, and an occasional peddler from Hilla or Baghdad excites the admiration of the Arabs by the display of a stock of coarse knives and common European hardware. The dampness of the soil upon which my tent was pitched and the unwholesome air of the surrounding marshes brought on a severe attack of pleurisy and fever. I was soon unable to move from my bed and was reduced at length to a state of extreme weakness. Fortunately, it occurred to me to use a blistering fluid given to me for an injured horse or I should probably not have left the Afage swamps. Notwithstanding the severity of the remedy, it gave me immediate relief and when Hormuzd joined me on the 28th of January, I resolved to make an attempt without further delay to reach Baghdad, where I could obtain medical aid. To add to our misfortunes, the rain fell in unceasing torrents for four days, and of course soon made its way through our tents. The waters of the marsh began to rise perceptibly, and the Afage were preparing to abandon their mat huts and to seek in their light taradas a safer retreat. Some days elapsed, however, before I could rise from my carpet. The state of affairs was daily getting worse. 
Abd Pasha had been suddenly deprived of his government by the Porta on account of the failure of his expedition against the Kazai Arabs, and his fall had increased the general anarchy. It was only by joining a large party of horsemen on their way to the seat of war in the south that Hormuzd had been able to reach Nifa. I found that it was quite impossible to penetrate further into Mesopotamia, and that by remaining much longer among the Afaj we ran the risk of being cut off from Baghdad altogether. I determined, therefore, to strike once more into the desert, where we were less likely to meet with hostile Arabs than in the beaten tracks, and to make a forced march to some village in the neighbourhood of Hilla. Fortunately, I had my own riding horse with me, and his easy paces enabled me to undertake the journey, although in a state of complete exhaustion. On the 2nd of February I took leave of Agab, and pitched my tents for the night beneath the mounds of Nifa. Before dawn on the following morning, we were urging our horses over the desert plains of the centre of Mesopotamia. Two armed adherents of the sheik were with us, rather to act as guides than to protect us from enemies. We travelled without any cause for alarm as far as the great ruin of Ziblia. A large body of horsemen then suddenly appeared in the distance. We ascended the mound and prepared to defend ourselves from this elevated position but either the Arabs did not perceive us or were bent upon some warlike expedition which did not admit of delay, for they passed onwards and left us to continue our journey. Ziblia closely resembles the celebrated ruin of Akakaf near Baghdad. It rises from a heap of rubbish in the centre of the desert and consists of a solid mass of large, crumbling, sun-dried bricks between the courses of which, at certain intervals, are layers of reeds, as in many of the Babylonian buildings. We saw no human habitation until long after nightfall, when we reached the small Arab hamlet of Bashai. It was surrounded for defence by a low mud wall, and some time was spent in a parley and explanation before the timid inhabitants would open their gates to so large a company of strangers. I could hardly remain in my saddle until their fears were set at rest, and we were admitted within the enclosure. At length I tottered into a hovel, thick with smoke, and sank down exhausted, after a ride of fourteen hours and a fortnight's complete abstinence from food. My poor Jabur workman, being on foot, had been unable to keep up with the caravan during our forced march. They did not reach the village until daybreak, and then in a very sorry plight, for they were stripped to the skin. They had approached, in search of water, the tents of some Arabs, and falling in with a plundering party had been robbed of everything and left naked in the desert. Next morning I had scarcely strength to mount my horse. Hormuzd turned off to Hilla to put a stop to the excavations at Babylon. With the caravan I made another forced march in the beaten track to Baghdad, and reached the Khan of Iskandaria. We were now within a few hours of the end of our journey, and leaving the servants and baggage to follow at leisure, I quitted the Khan with a Bayraktar before dawn to canter into Baghdad. As the sun rose from the sea like plain, the great ruin of Ctesiphon appeared above the eastern horizon. This ruin, with a few mounds and heaps of rubbish scattered about it, is all that now remains of the capital of the Parthian Empire. On the opposite banks of the Tigris, 
long lines of earthen ramparts forming a quadrangle and enclosing the usual signs of former habitations mark the site of the city built by Seleucus after the last fall of Babylon. The victorious Arabs under Sa'd, the general of the Caliph Omar, pillaged Ctesiphon after they had overthrown the Persian armies in the decisive battle of Cadesia in the sixteenth year of the Hegira. They found in the palace the throne, the crown and the standard of the Persian kings, together with a carpet which covered the floor of the great hall and was of such extraordinary beauty and value that it excited the wonder of the conquerors and was considered among the most precious spoil taken from their enemies. Ctesiphon and Seleucia received from the Arabs the name of Al-Madain, or the Twin Cities. When Baghdad was founded on the Tigris, a few miles above them, the Caliph al-Mansur wished to pull down the palace of Khosros for materials to build his own capital. His vizier, who had recently turned from the Magian religion, endeavoured to dissuade him. The Caliph upbraided him for being but an insincere convert to Islam and for sympathising with those who still professed his former faith and whose monuments he therefore wished to preserve. The attempt to destroy the vast edifice was fruitless, but when it was about to be abandoned, the vizier urged his master to persevere, exclaiming that if he now ceased to pull down the palace, history would say that al-Mansur, with all his power, was unable to overthrow that which another prince had built. I did not visit Ctesiphon on this occasion. The river separated me from the ruins, and I only mention them in this place to describe a remarkable effect of mirage which I witnessed as I rode towards Baghdad. As the quivering sun rose in unclouded splendour, the palace was transformed into a vast arcade of enormous arches resting upon columns and masses of masonry. Gradually this arcade was, as it were, compressed like the slides of a telescope, but the building gained in height what it lost in length, and one arch slowly appeared above the other, until the ruin assumed the shape of a tower reaching to the sky, and pierced from the base to the summit by innumerable arches. In a few minutes this strange edifice began to melt away into the air, and I saw a magnified though perfect image of the palace, but upon it was its exact counterpart upside down. Other equally singular changes succeeded until the sun was high in the heavens, and the ruins at length disappeared in the distance. The small bushes of camel thorn scattered over the desert were during this time turned into forest trees, and a transparent lake imaged for a fleeting hour in its counterfeit waters the varying forms of the insubstantial edifice. Although I have seen many extraordinary effects of mirage during my wanderings in the east, I scarcely remember to have witnessed one more striking or more beautiful than that near the ruins of Ctesiphon. I had just strength left me to reach the gates of Baghdad. Once in the city, under the friendly care of Dr. Hislop, I soon recovered my health and was ready to start on fresh adventures. End of chapter 24